this week's Texas Tribune Tribcast, we'll talk about the word we're awaiting from Beto O'Rourke, the latest over the controversial voter citizenship review, Dan Patrick's teacher pay raise proposal, and Julian Castro's presidential bid. Before we do, I'd like to thank today's Tribcast sponsors. The Episcopal Health Foundation. See how the Episcopal Health Foundation is working to improve health, not just health care, in Texas at episcopalhealth.org. And Texas State Technical College, the solution to the skills gap in Texas. Find out more at tstc.edu. Hello, this is Emily Ramshaw here on Wednesday, February 27th with the Texas Tribune Tribcast, our weekly politics and policy podcast. I'm joined this week by political reporter Patrick Svitek. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Public education reporter Aliyah Swaby. Hello. Hello. And courts and breaking news reporter Emma Platoff. Hi there. Hello, everybody. Uh, as always, we're taking your questions in real time on Twitter and Facebook. You can do that using the hashtag Tribcast. Uh, Emma, I just want to jump in really quickly. Some news broke this morning that I'd like you to fill us in on uh, regarding Texas' highest criminal court and parts of Texas's Open Meetings Act. Tell us why we should care. So the uh, Texas Court of Criminal Appeals this morning released a, an opinion basically that strikes down as unconstitutionally vague a big piece of the Texas Open Meetings Act, which is basically this big government transparency law that says, you know, if public officials are meeting, there's going to be a quorum present. You have to post it in advance. It has to be in the public where taxpayers can see, where pesky reporters can see. Um, and part of that law... Pesky. <laughs> She's talking um, about you, Leah. Um, <laughs> only, only some are pesky, I suppose. <laughs> Part of that law says basically that if you try to skirt the Open Meetings Act by by meeting with a small group, so less than a quorum, um, and you're having these kind of uh, secret deliberations is the language of the law, <laughs> that that can be a crime as well, and there's a criminal penalty associated with that. And that is what the court struck down this morning. Basically, they said, this is unconstitutionally vague. The legislature is certainly within its power to try to restrict public officials from having these secret meetings, but this law as it stands is unconstitutional. Um, and as you might expect, open government advocates are sort of shocked and incredibly disappointed. I spoke to one of the lawyers on the case who's planning to ask the court to reconsider, um, which is generally kind of a, a Hail Mary approach, but it just shows how important um, this ruling is. And it goes beyond the, you know, the legislature or the state capitol, right? I mean, doesn't this have ramifications for like every local city council or commissioner's court or school board? Yeah, exactly. It's, it's local meetings as well. And that's actually how this case made its way to the state's highest court in Austin. It was a Montgomery County uh, the county judge there was actually indicted on the statute. They were allegedly having secret meetings about a county bond. And he said, you know, dismiss this case against me. This law is unconstitutionally vague. And he ultimately won. Wow. Pretty amazing stuff. All right. Well, I was going to talk about Beto O'Rourke next, but then Aaliyah <laughs> shamed me saying we always talk about Beto. So we're going to start with Aaliyah. Uh, Aaliyah, you've been closely following one of Dan Patrick's uh, top priorities this session, uh, a proposal for a $5,000 raise for Texas teachers. Uh, the bill moved out of the Senate Finance Committee on Monday, but it was not uh, all rainbows and unicorns to get there. Uh, tell us what it was like. Yeah, so the, the committee hearing itself was interesting. It, it fell on um, ATP, which is this large educators association. It fell on their lobby day, so there were it was packed with a ton of educators there, um, not all of which, um, you know, actually testified, but a lot of them were, you know, it, it changed the tenor of the room mm -hmm. for sure. Um, and, you know, the, I think teachers were generally... 
um, wanted to say that they were appreciative of uh, the prospect of a pay raise, but also they asked for the bill to be expanded in a number of ways, um, which you know didn't happen before it was passed out of the the finance committee. But expanded they, to like include other to, yeah. types of educators, or? right? So uh, there are you know the, the bill is is pretty directed toward full time classroom teachers, um, but there are other educators who you know, do similar work and have similar uh, qualifications and, and um, requirements to actually get their jobs um, who would not get those raises. So librarians are an example. Um, you know, they have to be certified in similar ways. They, um, you know, end up doing uh, co-teaching with a lot of full-time classroom teachers. Um, they teach other teachers. They do a lot of, of the same work. Um, but they wouldn't be included and they wouldn't get the bill. So they were, I think, the loudest um, group. Um, the loudest librarians. They, That's my yeah. <laughs> <laughs> It's true. <laughs> um, and another group that came up that was interesting was um, school counselors. Um, and, you know, they said that if their salaries weren't raised, and I'm sure this applies to a lot of other kinds of, of educators, then people would leave their profession and become full-time classroom teachers instead or go to other educating professions or other professions entirely. So, you know, in if if we're trying as a state to try and boost the number of school counselors um, in schools, this is not the way to do it. They basically said it goes against some of the, the school safety um, you know, desires that, that lawmakers have for this session. Mm -hmm. Well, I imagine that, um, you know, in, no matter what form this ends up taking, a teacher pay raise is going to be supported by educators who are people who haven't always had, like, you know, the warm fuzzies for Dan Patrick. What's the motivation here? Um, you know, what's the history? Uh, why has this come up now? And why is Dan Patrick the one championing it? So, you know, it, a lot of people would say that this is a response to, um, the most recent election, um, the lieutenant governor, or won by by less than fewer than five points, um, which is a pretty small margin compared to the governor, who won by double digit margins, and and the lieutenant governor, um, the previous election, who won by double digit margins as well. Um, I think his office would say that this he's been trying to improve the teacher profession long before the elections. Um, you know, he did have a, a proposal in the 2017 special session where he um, wanted to give teachers up to $1,000 in raises, but that was very different in that it required school districts to um, move around existing funds in order to do that. It, it especially it in sort of an unfunded mandate, right? right. It was yeah, yeah. yeah entirely entirely an unfunded, <laughs> unfunded mandate. mandate. <laughs> this, which is state do state dollars, right? right. Yes, A which would be dollars. almost four billion. Wow, um, the proposal as it, as it passed out of committee this week. Mm -hmm. and, and he campaigned on a teacher pay raise. Mm -hmm. It mm -hmm. may have been the specifics may have been different, but before those election results, you mentioned he was. Right. pitching this on the campaign trail, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. While competing against, you know, his primary opponent and his general election opponent sort of both build themselves and tried to appeal to these education groups, right, which had right. historically not always been huge fans of Dan Patrick. Right. Well, in the history piece, so, I mean, some of the, obviously the efforts that he championed in the last legislative session were not necessarily measures that, um, that educators favored. Speak to that a little bit. Yeah, so, I mean, I think last session was really marked by, um, you know, on the House side, they were trying to do some form of, of school finance reform. And on the Senate side, they were saying, well, we don't want to pass that unless the House agrees to pass some form of, you know, program similar to vouchers. Mm -hmm. um, and obviously that 
did not go over well with, right. <laughs> with most educators um, who are politically involved in the state. So is this in theory, I mean, could, could the skeptical uh, among us say this is an effort to really sort of try to, you know, win back some support from this constituency? Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, a lot of um, of other conservatives in um, in the Senate and in the House have, have definitely made it clear that they're turning to um, you know, education policy right now and, and property tax policy um, because they feel that that's, you know, that those are the issues that people want them to go to, that they, um, you know, are reacting to the election results. And I think, you know, Dan Patrick says that it's it's not because of the election, but, you know, um, I think it's it's fair to say that that's that, that was a nothing for him as well. Right. I mean, at the same time, Dan Patrick has actually gotten some pushback on the far right uh, over this proposal too, right? I mean, Empowered Texans that gave has contributed like eight hundred thousand dollars to his campaigns is they I have seen a bunch of snarky comments, right? And they they have a program through which they there are certain votes that they grade lawmakers on. They say, you know, your vote on this was either pro taxpayer or anti taxpayer. And I actually just got the text alert that. Um, Senate Bill 3, which is this across-the-board pay raise we've been talking about, is one that they've designated with that status. And voting for that bill, as I understand it, is going to be seen as an anti-taxpayer choice. So that's kind of an unusual, as Aaliyah made in a really good story this week, um, it's kind of an unusual alignment for this group, which has been a huge financial supporter of the lieutenant governor, to come out against a priority of his. And are they accusing him of pandering? I mean, what are they accusing him of? Well, the um, the speech that I reference in, in the story that I wrote uh, for Monday, um, Carrie Cheshire, who is um, he is an employee of Empl of Empower Texans, he did accuse the lieutenant governor of of pandering to to liberals. Cow towing was the word, liberals, right? <laughs> um, and you know, ultimately said that it he didn't think it would be politically successful. That mm -hmm. you know, the teachers who had come out against him all this time weren't going to just take these pay raises and then support him. They were going to go back to the Democrats, basically, or back to whoever um, the lieutenant governor's opponents are in, in future elections. And I think that's, <laughs> I think that's, you know, quite frankly, a valid point. I mean, there are cor politically active corners of the public education com uh, community that are just deeply, deeply skeptical of Dan Patrick and, and sure. in some corner, in some corners, hostile to him. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I think it really remains to be seen whether if he gets this, you know more, more about this than I do, but if he gets this uh, $5,000 teacher pay raise through, whether that's going to just solve all his problems, yeah. political problems. Right. Yeah. I mean, none of the teachers I've talked to or advocates I've talked to have said anything different than that. Right. You know, they're all like, well, I mean, it would be something, but it would not change how we feel about dramatically. Yeah. Um, right. It's also, I think, worth noting that there's a decent chance that this doesn't end up passing, right. specifically in the House, in which case this was a great bone to throw out to say, you know, look, look at this I effort tried. I tried, but, you know, we have obviously seen important priority bills die in these kind of standoffs between the two chambers before, and I think it's possible that happens here. Hasn't right. Greg Abbott come out? I mean, isn't this one of his priorities too? Yeah, I, the governor has definitely come out for both uh, across the board pay raises and merit or incentive um, pay for teachers. Um, and also the, the bill, I think it's important to note, has um, I think more than 20, maybe 22 or 23 co-authors, both Dems and Republicans in the Senate, um, which is interesting given, you know, if, if Empowered Texans is sort of marking this this bill as one that they're going to, um, you know, retaliate against or, or you know, judge uh, lawmakers as unfriendly to taxpayers, it might be 
the entire Senate that they end up doing that for. Right. Question coming in on social media. How active has Empower Texans been on education policy in the past? I would say not particularly active. I mean, they, they are Maybe engaging. around vouchers on, or? Um, I don't think that has been their mm -hmm. issue, quite frankly. I mean, I think that they're engaging on this issue because they view it as a, you know, I mean, it goes to the, what's in their name, but a fiscal responsibility issue. Right. And I guess I, I just pulled up the text alert. The, the, to be more clear, they said they'll rate SB3 negatively without the passage of sufficient property tax relief. So I think sort of to Patrick's that point, if their focus is on yeah. property tax relief, then you can argue that this bill, obviously with a nearly $4 billion price tag, could potentially risk that priority. Mm -hmm. Great. All right. Uh, well, Emma, pivoting to uh, the latest on the drama over Texas's controversial voter uh, citizenship review. Uh, before I left for vacation a week <laughs> ago, uh, we were waiting to see if Texas Secretary of State David Whitley would be confirmed by the Senate. Uh, counties were all pissed off, and there was a whole bunch of pending litigation. What has changed in one week? <laughs> <laughs> uh, most of those things are still true, I would say. There is a Senate nominations committee hearing tomorrow, so we'll see if uh, David Whitley comes up for a vote. The last two weeks uh, when that committee has met, they have not called a vote on him, which is not necessarily bad news for his nomination, but is certainly not good news for his nomination. So meaning what, they're giving him more time to sort of try to mend fences and lobby folks? That's possible, and we know that he has been meeting with um, with sort of key players in the Senate behind the scenes. As of and around the state, right? And around the state in the districts of some of those senators who um, some people would consider swing votes. Yeah. We did hear uh, while you're on vacation that, <laughs> that all 12 Senate Democrats have at least said for now that they don't support confirming him. And given that he would need a two-thirds majority in the Senate, that's enough to block his nomination as long as nobody is, you know, going for a walk or on vacation at the wrong time. Mm -hmm. Do we have a sense that anybody would be going for a walk or on vacation at the wrong time? I mean, is there, <laughs> uh, well, I mean, if those, if, if we're assuming those 12 Democrats stick together, are there Democrats who their suggestions might be, you know, poached to, or, uh, you know, given t bargains to make this happen? People are certainly asking those questions, and we know of the Senate that you know some of the Democrats there are more willing to malleable than <laughs> some of their colleagues in the House and even even some of their Senate colleagues. So I think that these are all open questions right now. So if Whitley's nomination is left pending, like let's say it never comes up for a vote, um, what happens if he is not confirmed during the entire legislative session? He, he can't serve after the session concludes and the governor would appoint someone else. Mm -hmm. If he is rejected by the Senate on a vote, then he is immediately ejected out of office mm -hmm. and the governor has to appoint someone else who would also require Senate confirmation. Right. Uh, all right, well, take me back uh, one step. I know on Monday of this week, a federal judge told some Texas counties that they can't purge registered voters from their roles um, or even send letters demanding proof of citizenship. I guess eight counties or something. Tell us a little bit about that case. So there's been kind of a flurry of litigation on this issue, as you might imagine. There are three separate federal lawsuits which are now being consolidated in one case out of San Antonio. And in one of these lawsuits, the eight counties being sued, one of them, Galveston, had said, you know, while this is going on, while you're suing us, we're not going to take any action. There was kind of a handshake agreement, which is pretty par for the course, I would say, in this kind of um, sweeping civil rights federal litigation. And what the judge did on Monday in federal court in San Antonio was basically just extend that to the other counties that are named defendants in this lawsuit. So I believe that brings us to a total of 15 counties who, as part of this litigation, cannot take any action to purge voters, including sending these notices of examination, demanding citizenship proof, which can kind of trigger that process. Mm -hmm. um, 
because not every county in Texas, not all 254 are named in these lawsuits, the judge didn't explicitly say no counties can do this. And he hasn't yet issued an injunction that would block the state from taking any action. But um, the lawyers I've spoken to have said, you know, if you're if you're a county not named in this lawsuit, you're probably watching this litigation pretty closely and you're not trying to cross the judge, even if you're not explicitly barred from action at this right. moment. So, like, what's the relationship like now between the counties and the Secretary of State's office? I mean, I know our colleague Alexa Uda, who has been covering this from the beginning, wrote a little, a lot about this in the past week. You know, what is the communication like? How are the counties feeling? It seems like in a lot of ways they've been thrown under the bus here. It's a pretty tense relationship, I would say, at this point. As Alexa has reported, there was a really interesting and tense exchange in court on Monday, actually, between the uh, Caldwell County Elections Administrator and um, some lawyers for the Texas Attorney General's office. Basically, the Secretary of State's office has now taken the position that when we flagged these voters for you, we weren't telling you to immediately demand proof of citizenship. We were just saying, hey, these are some people you might investigate. And this elections administrator, um, who had 64 people flagged on her local list, she's come from kind of a smaller county, said, you know, when I get a letter from the Secretary of State, that's my boss, and I do what it says, and I send out those letters immediately. And if you didn't want me to send the letters, you shouldn't have sent me the list. So it's kind of this this growing tension. Right. I mean, which makes perfect sense, right? I mean, it's like, you know, <laughs> when I get a directive, when I get, get a note about something, a question about a story <laughs> from Evan Smith, who's the CEO, it's not just like him opining. It's like, you know, you take action. So it makes perfect sense that these folks thought that they were. And I'm also really interested in elements of her story, of Alexa's most recent story on this, where, you know, these counties were trying to get in touch. They had a, this primary point of contact at the Texas Secretary of State's office. And what suddenly happened to that point of contact? Um, so the chief, I believe her title was the voter registration director for the state, a woman named Betsy Schoenhoff, who's been in this job for more than six years, abruptly resigned February 6th, so just about a week and a half after the kind of botched rollout of this citizenship review effort. Um, she was in court on Monday after not being in court some previous days, and there were some, um, you know, maybe some would say tactless jokes about uh, where is Betsy, but Betsy was in court on Monday and shed some light on sort of what the problems have been, but I would say there are still unanswered questions. What was most amazing to me was that, you know, these folks were calling trying to reach her after she had already resigned, and the, you know, response they were getting basically was like, oh, she's not in today. Uh, and Alexa, I, I guess, on our reporting staff mm -hmm. called her, called herself to say, and said basically, hey, where's Betsy? And the response she got was something like, you know, she she's not in. She's just not in. Instead of, like, she resigned, she is not coming back. So it seems like communication on all sides has been quite complex. That's, so. I think that's fair. <laughs> yeah. All right, folks. Well, before our next topic, I'd like to thank two more TribCast sponsors. The Texas A&M University System. Explore the Texas A&M University System with John Sharp. Hashtag John Sharp says on T-A-M-U-S dot E-D-U. And the Alabama Cushata Tribe of Texas. Join the Alabama Cushata Tribe of Texas celebration. Open to the public. Barbecue on the South Lawn of the Texas Capitol today, February 27th, 2019. Okay, Patrick. It's your turn. I made you wait until <laughs> closer to the end. Uh, let's talk about Beto O'Rourke. He ha has given some mixed messages, but suggested that we would know one way or the other what he was doing by the end of February. And February is a short month. Yeah, so <laughs> ever since uh, that Oprah interview on February 5th, uh, you know, his line has been that he hopes to have a decision on what he's going to do in 2020 uh, by the end of this month. Um, now, he's kind of left some some wiggle room there to, to be honest 
Um, some people kind of took it as, as him, you know, vowing to announce the decision by, by 11.59 p.m. February 28th. What he said is... Is that he, El Paso time? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Everything's in yeah. time. Um, so, you know, but what he's actually said is he hopes to have a decision by then. Um, he, in his, his own last, head, I guess. His, yeah. his last, uh, you know, he hasn't necessarily pledged to make an announcement about that decision. Um, his last public appearance was Tuesday or last week, Tuesday, uh, in El Paso where reporters, you know, tried to get a little more out of him about what this decision, uh, when this decision will exactly come, what it will look like, how it'll be announced. And he didn't really have anything new to say. He said he hadn't really given much thought about how he would announce it. Um, you know, he didn't really, he continued to keep his options open about what exactly he's going to announce, whether it's going to be a presidential run, whether it's going to be a U.S. Senate run, whether it's going to be something entirely, uh, different or unforeseen. Um, and so, you know, there's still a lot of uncertainty, I'd say, around what exactly this decision is um, and what it's, what you know, and how and when it's going to come. Um, you know, he was asked again about the end of the month kind of de facto deadline, and he said he's still hoping to make that, uh, make a decision by then, but he's not going to be, quote, limited by the end of the month. I don't know exactly what that means, but clearly suggesting, um, <laughs> Could you know, bleed into March. clearly yeah. suggesting <laughs> a little, a little wiggle room right. there. And so, um, well, if we haven't heard you know, I wouldn't be now. shocked if he, if he, if he goes over at the end of the month, um, you know, he's approached this whole process very, um, <laughs> You know, you, you, the generous interpretation is, is thoughtfully. The less yeah. generous interpretation is, uh, you know, <laughs> dragging his feet and, and, yeah. and, and playing this out um, in a pretty lengthy way. Uh, and so I wouldn't be shocked if given all that, that he takes a little more, if he be, may take a little more time to think about this. My um, bet, I hear, if I'm a betting woman, my bet is like <laughs> on February 28th, he's going to say, here's the date of my announcement. Here's the date that I'm going to announce mm. by, and it's going to be in March, buying him a little more time. Uh, we'll see. But our colleague Alex Samuels had a really great piece uh, this past week raising a series of questions that Beto could be asking himself. And uh, she's going to do my work for me. I'm going to ask you guys some of those <laughs> questions and try to get your sense. Uh, her first her first question, which was great, was, you know, let's say he runs for president. Could he replicate his blockbuster or Senate fundraising on a national scale? Yeah, the question, yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, he built a national fundraising network during a Senate run, so I don't think there's necessarily uh, the kind of growing pains that he would, that a, any other kind of statewide candidate would necessarily have in, in going national. And so, um, you know, the, but, you know, he would compete with people like Bernie Sanders when it comes to this. Bernie Sanders, right. who raised, I think, $10 million in the first, or almost $10 million in the first week of his campaign, um, you know, he, you know, work would have to compete with those kinds of numbers. And those mm -hmm. are very serious numbers. Mm -hmm. uh, but I don't think, you know, given that he has that national fundraising base already. Um, he has I, a platform to start. He from, absolutely yeah. has a strong, a strong place to start in terms of small dollar fundraising. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, and also, let's say, again, since we're playing this out, if he runs, what would the style of a national presidential campaign look like for Beto O'Rourke? Like, how much similarity would it have to his Senate run? How, like, if you guys were just guessing, what would that national run look like? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a, a more pressing consideration for him in some ways. I mean, I know, based on my reporting, that he'd want to stay true to the kind of campaign that he ran in 2018 in Texas mm -hmm. and the kind of campaigns, for that matter, that he ran previously mm -hmm. for Congress and for city council in El Paso, uh, which are these kind of do-it-yourself, no-frills campaigns. Um, the candidate is very close to the, the people, basically. Um, you know, not a lot of, uh, you know, overly produced staged events. Um, Will he be an 
I mean, will he do the traditional like Iowa, New Hampshire? Like, I mean, I'm sure he would go to those states, but I'm, you know, you look at some of the events, for example, that Kamala Harris has been doing, um, you know, in in Iowa and early voting states, and you know, you have the the chair, you know, perfectly set up on the stage, mm-hmm. 45 degree angle facing the moderator. You have the just logo. like we do during this tripcast. Yeah, exactly. You basically have this. <laughs> I, I think Rourke's events would be just a, a little, you know, if you look at his Senate campaign and previous campaigns as, as a as a template, um, things would be a little different. And I think that's a big a big consideration for him is if he can take that national, not just the way he does events. Um, and the way he communicates with voters, but the uh, no pollsters, no consultants, that kind mm-hmm. of thing, which, that, you know, trying to take that national is, is not an insignificant consideration. Mm-hmm. So how does his resume then measure up to the folks who are already announced and in the race? Yeah, I mean, I, I tend to think that resume, you know, increasingly matters less in politics and, and experience. I think Donald Trump kind of threw that out the, out, out the window in many ways. And so voters aren't necessarily looking at that. Um, as seriously as they once were. But there's no doubt you have a number of, of U.S. senators in this race who bring the experience that you get in the, in the U.S. Senate, both on the, the domestic policy side of things and on the foreign policy side of things. And so, um, you know, he has to compete with people like that. Um, the advantage that he and, and the other Texas Democrat, uh, Julian Castro, would have in this race is they, they don't have day jobs or they wouldn't have day jobs. And so uh, they wouldn't have to be rushing back to U.S. Senate for votes. Um, and also it benefits at least Castro, uh, obviously O'Rourke served in, in the U.S. House. It benefits them that they don't have a voting record, quite frankly, because it's, it's less fodder for your, your, your critics. Yep. Well, uh, Benjamin asks on social media, why are you guys still talking about Beto? But I'm going to ask one more question. <laughs> that is, is Beto the best representative for a changing Democratic Party? You know, uh, obviously in a time when there are other candidates who are people of color, who are women, you know, is adding one more white male to the Democratic mix even a worthwhile endeavor? I've answered the first two. You guys <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I won't speak for the Democratic electorate of this country, but I think that's a real concern. We see already the most diverse field on the Democratic sort of, you know, ever-growing list of primary candidates that we've ever seen. And I think there's a big, that's a big identity question that the party is grappling with, right? Do we want to nominate someone like Joe Biden or do we want to look at younger, fresher faces, women, people of color who historically haven't represented the party? Right. Uh, all right, well, um, since we are no longer talking about Beto, we're going to quickly talk about Julian Castro in our last couple of minutes here. <laughs> Benjamin will be thrilled. I uh, know, Benjamin, I hope you're looking forward Big to Castro this. Fan. Uh, <laughs> Patrick, you've obviously been keeping very close tabs on uh, Julian Castro. What kind of travels has he been pursuing uh, as he pursues this bid? Sure, so he made his uh, last week or over this past weekend, made his first trip to Iowa as a declared candidate. Uh, obviously, had been to Iowa a number of times in the lead up to his uh uh, announcement of his candidacy um, did kind of this three-day swing uh, about 10 events it was you know what was somewhat notable about it was that this the itinerary was really focused on western and northwest Iowa northwest Iowa in particular is, is the conservative part of the state um, after the midterm elections it's the only congressional uh, it, it's it's home to the only congressional district in Iowa that has, still has a Republican representative and that mm-hmm. Republican representative is Steve King uh, who is this you know as everyone knows is you know firebrand known for very incendiary rhetoric on race and immigration. Um, and so, you know, it was against that, that backdrop that Castro uh, campaigned across that part of the state. He hit two communities uh, that I'd say were notable in particular, uh, Storm Lake and Denison, uh, which uh, those are both the seat of the two counties in Iowa uh, that have the highest uh, uh, percentage of Latino population. Mm. 
Um, now I was at his stop in, in Denison. Was got, he got a pretty small crowd where there weren't exactly, uh, you know, Hispanic attendees. <laughs> but it, it was a start in terms of, um, you know, trying to speak to some of those, those emerging immigrant communities mm-hmm. um, in Northwest and Western Iowa. And how has he been responding to questions about, like, how he's faring in this already crowded Democratic field? Sure. Um, You know, his go-to line on that is that he believes that, you know, just given his background and and who he is, that he's kind of the, quote, you know, people are going to be looking for the opposite of Trump, and he's the antithesis to Trump. He also talks a lot about, you mentioned resume earlier, also talks a lot about having executive experience as a mayor and then as a cabinet secretary. And he also talks, he's talked about this for a while, but in response to questions like that, also plays up kind of the generational difference that he'd uh, represent. Uh, obviously, he's still pr- pretty young, and especially when you look at some of the older people in the field, um, you know, he's he's definitely young. <laughs> and so, and you know, the How old current, is he? Uh, oh gosh, someone on, someone yeah, on social I'm gonna, media. I'm going to get that wrong, so I don't want to... Mid-40s is my, would mid, be my mid guess. Mid to late 40s, I yeah, want right. to say. Yep. Um, and then another way he's trying to stand out, and I think this is this is smart, is he's trying to... Um, he's pledged to visit all 50 states in his campaign. He's trying to, early on, go where other Democrats are not going. Um, and he's this week he was in Utah, uh, or today he's in Utah. Yesterday he was in Idaho. Um, and so he's going to places that don't necessarily get attention from presidential candidates, um, which is kind of smart. You know, you look at you look at Iowa this past weekend. There were no fewer than I think a half a dozen potential or declared candidates in Iowa. I mean, it was a, a traffic jam of candidates <laughs> in Iowa basically over the course of three days. And it's it's hard, you know. And although Democrats in general are fired up and are turning out for these events, mm-hmm. it's still it's still hard to you know um, to stand out in in that kind of dynamic. And so. If you have the time and the resources, um, and as we mentioned earlier, Castro definitely has the time, has the resources for now, it appears. I think it's smart to go to these places, these states that that other Democrats aren't hitting yet. Great. All right, y'all. Well, that's all the time we have this week. Thanks to the Episcopal Health Foundation, Texas State Technical College, the Texas A&M University System, and the Alabama Cushada Tribe of Texas, our sponsors this week. Extra special thanks, as always, to Spoon for our theme music. On behalf of Emma, Aaliyah, Patrick, and our producers, Michael, Ray, and Bobby, this is Emily. Thanks for listening.